The views and opinions expressed by any hosts or guests of WJMS Radio do not reflect the beliefs of its owners or associates. No liability, explicit or implied, shall be extended to WJMS Radio or the show hosts whose words, advice, and or opinions appear from or on our website or on air. You don't want to miss In the Blender with Brandon and Malin Hyman, where faith, family, finance, fellowship, and fitness is our focus. So get ready for your family to be launched into another stratosphere. You're tuning in to the dynamic broadcast of In the Blender with Brandon and Madeline Hyman. Well, good evening and welcome to In the Blender with Brandon and Madeline Hyman. And tonight we are going to have an awesome time to have with us. Dr. Yolanda is in the house and she's going to be talking with us um, about Mental Health Awareness Month. We know it's the month of May, but we thought we'd get a jump start on it and have her on to share um, a lot of she a lot of information to share with us concerning that and um, we're ready to to roll i mean we have had her on before and it's just a blessing to be able to bring her back to share with us again as we enter into um mental health awareness and i'm telling you guys um listen you want a pad you want a pencil you want there's going to be a, 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 a great wealth of information that she's going to share uh, as it relates to mental health awareness, what's going on in the land today, uh, how systems are navigating this particular topic, and the need for this discussion. And so with further ado, uh, I'm going to introduce to some and present the others. Some of the old things do happen. Introduce to some and present to others. Dr. Yolanda Bushwagger. Hey guys, thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Um, and you know, all I can say is when you all asked me to come on tonight, I said this is either gonna be a really, really happy show or a really, really sad show. <laughs> because um I knew that um we were all anticipating the uh, verdict here, right? For the George uh, Floyd, the the murderer, as you will, for, for George Floyd being um, Officer Derek Chauvin. And the reason I bring that up is because um, as we approach Mental Health Awareness uh, Month, um, much of what many of us are dealing with in this nation um, are these traumas, these microaggressions, these tragedies day in and day out. All of them are not our own, but we identify with them um, and they're causing us to have, you know, the water cooler conversations, right? They're causing us to talk to our family members about it. Our kids, we're having to, as parents, talk to our kids about what racism is and what are the appropriate steps when um, law enforcement, when you interact with them. And most likely, if you're a Black man, you will, right? So we're having to talk to our young boys about the fact that there are there, this is going to happen and how do you conduct. All of those things are really, they've just been traumatizing. And so I say that today because we have spent over a year overstimulated, not just because of the pandemic, right? Most of us are overstimulated because we've been dealing with just this virus. We've been overstimulated because we've had to deal with masks. And um, right now we're dealing with whether or not you're going to get the vaccine or not, or if a family member has been sick, or if you've had to go to work um, or not go to work, or you're out of work. There's so many things we've been overstimulated with. But on top of the pandemic, we've been overstimulated with all the racial tensions that we have um, um, witnessed lately. And um, so I just, you know, I, all I can say is this is either going to be really good, <laughs> you know, we're nursing ourselves the wounds because um, I, you know, I anticipated that at some point we were going to learn the fate of, of Officer Chauvin. And it's not that, you know, anyone gets any, uh, any glee or joy out of another person's suffering, but more that you recognize or you at least feel somewhat that there's some justice that is being served. And for whatever reason, that sort of helps you make sense a little bit of um, 
what it is that we've been experiencing, right? Some of the trauma that we've experienced this year, it just sort of helps a little. And so, um, but I'm just so excited. Thank you guys for inviting me back and um, let's go. Uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to the conversation. So, um, you know, it, it's so funny you mentioned that because I, I told Mel and I said, uh, um, I'm, I'm, I'm glad of the verdict a lot because of the, um, it just needed to go that way. But I said, if this thing don't go that way, I don't know how uh, Doc will be out. <laughs> I don't yeah. know because I, I, I knew the um, the connection that you had with the events that were going on. Uh, being a part of a civil rights legacy, you know, a lot of people don't know your family and the legacy uh, that your family, the role that your family played in the civil rights struggle. And Absolutely. so I, I knew personally that, you know, this could either be a real spicy mm-hmm. <laughs> conversation mm-hmm. or a not so spicy conversation. Mm-hmm. But like you said, just because of the strain that we have been under as a people, especially during this time. And yeah. so thought it's necessary that we talk about mental health awareness. What is it? How do we deal with it? Is it for us? All these different, there's a lot, still a lot of stigma behind this. If you paid attention, especially these last 365 days, there has been a lot of turmoil in life. Marriages have fallen apart. Domestic violence has increased. Violence just within itself is at an all-time high. Drug addiction has increased. There's just so many things that people have uh, resolved to because of mental health, uh, mental health issues. Issues, right? And so we have to address these things. And I can't think of nobody better than I wanted to talk to you about it than yourself. And so, even with that, though, with everything going on, even a lot of it is the the children are becoming even younger and younger, and you know all this crime and help, you know, issues and stuff. So, you know, hoping that you'll, you know, talk about that as well. Oh, um, yeah. We have like a two-part question to start with. Um, what exactly is mental health and why is such concerning it. So, I mean, just like any health that we talk about, it's the sort of absence of disease or wellness, if you will, right? And so we talk about, everyone sort of knows what physical health means, right? It means that you're operating fully, you have good use of your of your limbs, um, you know, nutritionally, um, you're stable. Most likely you're at the ideal weight for your, you know, for your height and your body and you're active. Well, that's all your physical health, right? Those are the criteria that we can, we can kind of look at. And it's not that easy when it comes to mental health. You know, people look real normal on the outside who are having real mental health issues. We can dress up mental health a lot better than you can dress up physical health. You kind of know when someone has an ailment because they're going to limp. They can't, they can't pick up, you know, something. So, you know, something's wrong with their arms. Um, I'm just saying when you know that when there's a physical impairment, um, our eyes are drawn to it. We recognize it and we can, you know, pretty much say, you know what, this person is unable, you know, we see a a man without a foot or uh, amputated from the knee down. We don't expect so much for him to be able to kick something with his right foot if he doesn't have a right foot or, or, you know, a right leg. The problem with mental health is we can't see where people's deficits are, but we expect them to fully operate like they don't have any issues. And here's why that's such a problem, because the stigma is that you don't want to let anybody know that um, people, they don't want to let anybody know that they're unable to concentrate or they're having a difficult time with memory. Um, You know, things like dementia, Alzheimer's as you're getting older. No one wants to let someone know that they have a temper um, or that, you know, they have a little bit of aggressive behavior or they have ADHD as a kid. Um, Maybe they were on medications. There's all these things that we're covering up. Um, by covering them up, what you really do is you don't give people the opportunity to know where your deficits are and to be able to work with you, you knowing your deficits. 
deficits and maybe even give you the grace that you need where you have those deficits. If someone has a physical impairment, we give them grace because we realize and recognize they necessarily can't do that. So we don't expect it from them. But when we don't do that with mental health, we're constantly expecting a too much sometimes of people. And, and, and some people really succumb to the pressure of that and then, and then they crack. And so the, the stigma is often that I don't look whole. And if I don't look whole, um, people may, you know, treat me differently and I don't want to be treated differently. But I think it's, it's, it's the wrong way to look at it. I think if we re realize that people would actually give you grace in an area um, and then maybe even work with you, letting them know that um, you have some problems with, with depression or with anxiety or um, whatever your situation is, then they're allowed to um, understand that today might not be a great day for you. Expecting you to complete your entire workload that was, you know, put on your, your desk because this is the year anniversary of your mother's, you know, dying or something, um, that would allow them to give you the grace that you need. But we don't often want to tell people that we have a deficit. And, and that's a problem. Yeah. So you think it's important for um, us to let people know that it's OK to not be OK? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think we need to normalize it's OK not to be OK, right? The normal part of us is... Uh, the part of us that's human and that needs that grace, that needs a little um, extra, that needs, you know, to be reached out to and understood. That should be the normal. Um, we should normalize that. The problem is we're constantly normalizing the, you know, I'm living my best life. I got this all worked out. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm always on top. Look at me. And I have nothing, nothing against us uh, celebrating our wins, but when that's all we celebrate and it's all we expose people to, then people are under the impression that when they're not winning, something's wrong with them. And winning 100% of the time, I don't care what their social media looks like, nobody is winning 100% of the time. Um, they're real strategic at what they post and when they post it, um, mm -hmm. but winning all the time. In fact, you know, you don't appreciate a good win without a few losses. So you have to really understand um, that it's okay not to um, always be on this high. And sometimes people are even um, addicted to the high almost. And that's all a form of, of mental illness, if you will. That's a mania. You know, when we talk about bipolar mm -hmm. and bipolar depression, Bipolar disease has two polar opposites. It's bipolar. It's, it's a very deep, dark depression. Can't move. Can't talk to anybody. I want to sleep. I don't want to be, you know, I don't want anybody around me. And then the high mania is I got this. I'm on top. It's the world is on fire. I can do it all. You know, I can do whatever. <laughs> and, but it's excessive. It's so excessive that you're like, is that person okay? You know, because you almost can't turn them off. Um, and so the problem is we're we're normalizing only the, uh, you know, I win, I win, I win, and we're not normalizing the, you know, what I, I need a hug today. You know, I need a moment. Um, I'm not I'm not doing, you know, not that God hasn't created me to win and and all those things, but today I, I think I need a moment, and 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 it's okay. It's okay to need some time. It's okay. To, um, to need a hug. It's okay to, to take a break, you know, and say, yeah, I need to regroup. And that's why, you know, I, my answers could be so long-winded. I'm so sorry. But that's why healthcare <laughs> is such an important part of this whole idea and conversation. It's one of the reasons that that's the thing that I'm always focused on because self-care recognizes that I have to know how to take care of me in order to continue to take care of you. The God in me, the real Christian God in me who understands who God is and why he's on the inside of me and that if I truly appreciate and praise him and honor him the way I should, if he's on the inside of me, that means I got to take care of me because that really means I'm honoring and, and serving him fully and wholly at all times if I'm actually 
actually caring for myself the way I should. So that's you why know, stuff to me is so awesome. You, you said a couple things, um, and I'm, I'm going to kind of go backwards in what you said. Uh, the first thing is honoring yourself. And it's so important that we learn to do that. Uh, we do a great job at honoring others. We do a great job at pushing others and promoting others and wanting others to have the best in life. All too often, you don't take that same energy and pour it into yourself. You right. know, society has taught us that that's selfishness. Well, guess what? I can't help others without first helping self. And so it's important that, that we talk about those things. And then you talked about being long-winded. I can have a list of questions, but if my questions and your answers aren't enough or aren't in-depth enough to help folks resolve some issues and bring some light to some things that they're going to, then what we're doing is in vain. Right. And, so I, and, and we know you're a talker. <laughs> we know that. It, but it's necessary because this is not an issue. This is not a topic that you can just run straight through. Right. I, you know, I, I grew up in a community where I saw function addicts. Right. People that were, I'm talking about crack addicts, heroin mm -hmm. addicts, the whole nine yards, but they got up every day. Yeah. They went to work. Yeah. They mm -hmm. paid bills. They came home. They raised families, but they were addicts. And mm -hmm. people don't understand that this mental health um, pandemic that we're dealing with, because this thing is huge. It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's bigger than... Uh, uh, a seasonal cold. This is real. Right. Mm -hmm. And because we're going to go into frontline workers as well. And so it's important that we address this because people are trying to figure out why do I feel the way I feel? Why do I really think the way I'm thinking? Mm -hmm. And if we don't bring some things to light that can make folks have an aha moment, guess what? Mm -hmm. They're going to keep failing. Mm -hmm. They're gonna keep failing, and it's our ultimate goal that we win. That's one of our slogans. You know that we win. Absolutely. This is not uh like you said. This is not a, a, a poster. We win. We win. No, we win because we can be honest. We win because we can tell somebody, "Hey, man, I'm struggling. Hey, girl, I need some right. help. You know what right. I'm saying? I, I, I'm not. I'm, I'm not doing too well today. Then you win when you can open up and share what you're going through. That's and how the, you win. That's and the win, right. But the win as well that I want us to recognize as a community is that your win is not simply a win if you only do it alone by yourself and you figured it out, right? The win yes. is when we win collectively. When I may have your answer or your resource and you have my answer and my resources. So the real winning is understanding that I don't have to know how to do everything. I just have to be connected to the right people. Like And like you said, I just have to be open and I have to be willing to serve, serve others in my capacity in the thing that I do well and actually connected to people who are willing to serve and in their capacity, they serve me and they serve me well. And we're all doing it collectively. That's the win. The But so, and like I said, where the falsehoods come in is when all we project is I'm winning all by myself. I got this all by myself. Look at me. I'm on top of the world all by myself. Um, and that's where people begin to get challenged with understand, figure, trying to figure out, well, why am I not, you know, um, uh, uh, experiencing all of that? But the real, I think if we become really truthful um, about how we're winning, right, is that we're winning collectively. And where I'm excelling in this area and I can do this thing, let me do it for you too. Let me help you make sure we're bartering and bargaining. Um, that's where we win. You know? And so I, I know offline, we talked about something that we're going to talk about online. And you are a frontline worker. And so, I mean, I applaud frontline workers so much. I mean, you guys have, in the midst of all that we've gone through, first as a people, a nation, a country, a continent, world, <laughs> you guys have shined like never before. And I... A couple of things that I, I realized. One, you're very underappreciated. 
for what you do and what you've done mm -hmm. as a frontline worker, um, putting yourself out there in the midst of a pandemic, exposing yourself as the world tries to figure out what even is this we're dealing with. <laughs> and right. how do we, you know, just figuring it out and then trying to get a handle on it. And so right. the mere fact that you along with countless others have put yourselves out there to help the common man overcome what we're experiencing, I applaud. But yeah. we, mm -hmm. we talk about the the challenges mentally that you guys have experienced. Right. Because again, you're, you're going, it's like being in the military and the war is going on. When you're on that front line, your level of stress, your level of anxiety, your <laughs> level of depression, your mm -hmm. level of despair, all those levels are heightened mm -hmm. far above the person that's in the tent giving orders. Right. Far above the person that's in a foreign country watching on TV. And mm -hmm. so give us a little bit about that experience and some of the things you're seeing uh, being translated to assist you guys. Well, well so first of all, I thank you for um, acknowledging um, acknowledging that and the fact that we had to acknowledge it for ourselves. And I think before I go into it, I want to say that I also acknowledge that as a frontline worker, we're considered frontline workers and heroes. And we were kind of given that um, title and acknowledgement. And it was for the first time and we appreciated it. But once I, once we sort of had this experience, I started realizing there's a whole lot of frontline workers that we're really not acknowledging that are actually also frontline workers, right? You got grocery store clerks who couldn't stop doing what they were doing, but nobody was clapping for them when they were coming off of their shifts, right? You had the whole thing with New York and the nurses and doctors were getting, uh, you know, ovations in the evenings. But nobody did that for the grocery store clerks. Nobody did that for, you know, the guys who had to keep working. You know, I had a conversation with a, man, a mechanic who um, those places didn't shut down. Why? Because they were servicing, you know, ambulances and, and um, police cars and all of the all of the essential. So they were considered essential, right? So there were all these people that were essential that I didn't think about. I'm going to tell you who else we appreciated after this teachers, a whole lot of people who had kids in school when their kids couldn't go to school were like, whoa, the teachers are essential workers because now they had to be home. They had to homeschool their kids. They had to figure out how to get online and work. They had to do. And, and so, so many of us pay these, play these integral parts in society. Frontline workers are moms, you know, mothers were becoming so important in their households because they were holding it all together. So there were so many people that I think didn't get that recognition that I would just like to acknowledge because um, everybody couldn't stay home. Everybody couldn't be online. We definitely had to go in because we had to see patients still. Um, and it was a very grueling um, first few months because I kept remembering people talking about sheltering in place. And I kept thinking, we're not sheltering in place. I'm reporting to work every single day. Um, and the streets were eerily like quiet and calm. Nobody was out, but I had to go to work every single day and get gas every single day. And I had to go to the store, grocery store, because I was still outside and I never really got that opportunity to shelter in place. Um, you know, and then telemedicine popped up. And we were kind of doing this hybrid and we still are now where I am seeing some patients at home, but I still have to see patients in, in the office. Um, but what I will tell you that it did mentally was um, it was extremely scary um, because I knew I was exposing not just myself, but I was exposing my family. I had to go out. Um, I had to see patients. I, I look like somebody with a hazmat suit up. I think I even posted one time, but you know, the shield on my head and the goggles and the mask and gowned up. And, and that's how I went to work every single day. And then I would have to come home, disrobe, shower on my first floor before I even went upstairs to see my kids. Um, and, and, you know, I wouldn't cook dinner for them. I would let them mostly cook because I didn't want 
to contaminate anything. It was it was a very uh, difficult time, but um, it was obviously worth it. The reason I got through it, though, <laughs> is because I reached out to other healthcare workers and I said, you know, I can't be the only one feeling this way. I can't be the only one experiencing this. Um, this and I, I guess what I'll add to it is at that time we were sheltering in place. Um, the irony is that you know Derek Chauvin gets gets um, sentenced today, but at that time we were sheltering in place. What was also happening was that we had all of these things that were um, that were sp spilling out into the streets, all the protests and things after Ahmaud Arbery and after the George Floyd killing. Um, and we were dealing with just disappointed and and over policed and over traumatized as black people. And then I would have to go into my community and 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 almost act like none of that was bothering me. How can I help you today? But really in the back of my mind saying, I know that no one's asking how they can help me today. And I, I was really kind of struggling with that. And, and so I reached out to other healthcare workers and, and thought, I can't be the only one feeling like this. And, and you know, lo and behold, I wasn't. And so um, we ended, I ended up actually writing a book called um, Navigating a Triple Pandemic. And the triple pandemic was, um, you know, racism in America, health disparities in medicine, because here we were, our communities were being hit the hardest by COVID-19 because of the health disparities. And then the trauma of COVID-19. So that's how I ended up dealing um, with it. You know, the resiliency factors I think that we have as a people is our collective strength, right? And so what I learned a long time ago is that I get along best when I reach out and I, um, you know, there's a pro old African proverb, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, you know, go together. Um, and that's really how I always um, operate in, the, in sort of my motto. There are things that if I really want to do something to make a, a great impact, I'm going to make sure I look for uh, like-minded individuals and figure out, well, how can we do this together? Um, and it may take more, it may take a little bit longer, but you'll definitely make a bigger impact. And so that's what, that's what we did with the book. You know, it's funny you mentioned um, the other frontline workers because early on during the, during the pandemic, um, I'm a con contractor. And so people weren't letting you in their house and, you know, um, sales dropped tremendously. I mean, it was hard in the sense of me trying to accomplish what I did. Mm -hmm. and, but on the other end, I also at that particular time was driving Uber mm -hmm. and the stress of picking up people you don't know, yeah. uh, folks not wanting to wear masks. And I'm talking about early on in this process. And yeah. it was I mean, it was rough. And I remember, like you said, coming home, had the strip, couldn't talk to my wife, anything, had to make a beeline up to, you know, had to wash my clothes, make a beeline up to the bathroom shower, and then kind of still stay distant because I'm still interacting with folks not knowing what's going on. Absolutely. And I, I remember it got so bad that and I'm gonna say this so all you Uber drivers that watch cash at me because this is what happened. It got so bad, I literally contacted Uber 30 days continuously. Wow, and my contact with them is the reason why they put their policies in place to combat this this, this pandemic. They right. had no policy for drivers wearing masks, drivers mm. wearing masks, anything. And because I was doing it, I wasn't going to continue to put myself in that position. And so I understand the stresses of getting out here. You have to do what you have to do in order to take care of the body for yourself and your family. And mm -hmm. so with the stresses of it, but you still have to continue anyway. And so, again, I applaud you. I applaud everybody on taking on that road. Let's talk a little bit about that book. Mm -hmm. So it's it, um well, again. So I mean, I'm a, this is for your audience to see, but it's um, navigating a triple pandemic. And again, this is volume one. And as healthcare workers of color confront racism in America, health disparities in medicine, and the trauma of COVID nineteen, and what it was is that each one of us wrote our own contained chapter. 
And we all just sort of talked about the triumphs and the traumas and the, the just the, the things that we were all experiencing during this pandemic. The irony is that not one person didn't mention all of the racism that was happening in the streets and how that was affecting their quality of care and their mental health. Every single person, although it was about the pandemic, it really was about your mental health in the pandemic. And so that's when I said, we as healthcare workers, um, we're affected sometimes more than people realize because we come across as though we we aren't because we're supposed to to be professional, right? Is to remain um, in, in this in, in, as though to remain in this posture as though you everything is taken care of. I know all these answers. Any question you have, I can answer it. Maybe there's a couple that I don't, but I'll find out for you. You know, you have to. That's how because who wants your doctor to walk in and go, oh, I don't know, I don't. I don't know what this is. And oh Lord, I, you know, nobody wants that, right? But at the time, it's not that we weren't feeling like we didn't have the answers, but the problem was there were so many more questions than there were answers. So as we were being asked, what is this pandemic? Um, where did it come from? How are you, you know, uh all of these questions were coming at us and we were learning with people. Um it was stressful because everyone expects you to know. And I had to keep explaining to people, when we say it was a novel virus, it was brand new. Nobody had seen it. But as I learn more, I'm gonna tell you everything I know. Um, the irony is now we're in the vaccine stage. And guess what? Oh my goodness, every doctor I know has become a vaccine expert <laughs> because we've had to sort of talk about what it looks like. Now, the irony is as a pediatrician, I've always been a vaccine expert. That's what I talk about. That's what I do. I talk to parents about vaccines. You know, the the, the anti-vaxxers, when you talk to them, they're mostly from um, the point of view of not wanting to vaccinate their children. So I've been talking about vaccines for a long time. I didn't know specifically about the physiology of the of this vaccine until now. And I've, I've learned and, and had to talk about the biochemistry and how it changes your body physiologically and all that stuff. But um, the vaccine itself and the idea of vaccines, I'd already been very well versed. But I know internists and, and podiatrists and uh, <laughs> ophthalmologists that have had to learn more and more about vaccines because everybody wants to ask a person who has the MD behind their name. And so these are people who never had to talk to anybody about vaccines, but they've all had to become vaccine experts, especially in our community. And I'll talk about that. The messenger is as important as the message. So yes. they don't want to hear it from just anybody. They want to hear it from Dr. Yolanda or they want to hear it from Dr. So, you know, they want to hear it from that doctor that they know and they trust. The most questions I get is, did you get the vaccine? Well, did your kids get the vaccine? I'm like, absolutely. Every single one of them, my whole family, my whole household is vaccinated. I'm not going to ask you to do something I wouldn't be willing to do myself. Um, and so that's where their trust, you know, comes in. Their trust comes in because they can um, trust that if I've told them to do this, um, if I'm doing it myself, then they'll go ahead and, um, they'll go ahead and do it too, because I've, um, I've at least let them know um, that I, I believe in the science. And so if I believe in the science, then, then they'll start to think, mm, okay, if she's willing to do that, then maybe, um, maybe I will take that chance. But our messenger, like I said, the messenger is as important as the message in our communities. And I knew that, and I've known that a long time. And so that's why I do what I do. So, you know, they're, they're talking about, um, trying to get back to normal. And, and we know that's not happening, <laughs> you know. Um, and with this new norm that we're establishing, how how do you see the the role or importance of mental mental health awareness being played out? Oh, well, one of one of the things that I love about there's so many things that I think have been very tragic over this past year. Um, but I think out of the tragedy has come a blessing, right? So one is we all had to sit still. We were 
busy of the hustle. We were just busy with the hustle and bustle of our lives and, and everything was getting bigger and, and grander. And, and we were so busy doing that, that when we all had to sit still and shelter in place, it really called attention to really small things in our lives, right? Your house, <laughs> you know, you had to spend a bunch of time in your house. Many people had, like you being the contractor, many people started having housing projects, right? They had to, um, you know, I remember I actually, right before the pandemic, I decided to, to have a home office. Prior to that, I was always out and about and I was like, oh, I'm gonna get one. Luckily, and that was Holy Spirit. I did it right before the, the pandemic and it was a blessing that I did because who knew everything was gonna be on Zoom in your home office, right, for the year. But it called attention to so many things. And what I think it called attention to is mental health. It called attention to the fact that so many people who were already on the verge of depression, already on the verge of anxiety, already had suicidal ideations, already had these underlying mental um, health issues became magnified because the the pandemic was exacerbating it, right? They were now sitting at home and they couldn't get to their doctors. Um, but now with telemedicine, people had more access to doctors that they couldn't get to. So many people who couldn't get appointments, now they were getting appointments because now you could get telemedicine appointments. Prior to that, even with your insurance, you couldn't get telemedicine appointments. If you couldn't get to that doctor, get an appointment, drive downtown, park your car, or get there on, on subway or whatever, then you just couldn't see that doctor. Well, when the pandemic hit, all of a sudden we got really creative about telemedicine visits. We got really creative about group visits. We just got very creative. And I think that it called a lot of attention to mental health. Um, and I think that we've now expanded our idea of what self-care means because it, we realize that you can't be on Zoom for eight to 10 hours a day and, and be normal. That's not okay. I think that it's called attention to balance for uh, work and, and, and life and your children. It called attention to a lot of things that we weren't paying attention to before. And I think we're now we're a lot more aware because like you, we were talking about this offline, um, anxiety has increased like 300% since the pandemic. Um, so has depression, right? So has suicide ideations. Talking alone about the gun violence. People have gone out and used this time and they've either you know gone out and perpetrated against others in a community or they've turned the gun on themselves. You know, the young man that drove the car into um, the Capitol, that was a mental health crisis that he was having. So people are having mental health crises all the time. And I think the pandemic has definitely um, called attention to it, pulled the blanket off, if you will. And now we're recognizing that a lot of, I, I want to touch on what you said. You said that as you grew up, there were a lot of functional um, alcoholics, functional um, drug addicts, functional. What we're finding out is those people that were functionally addicts were actually self-medicating. Most of them for some mental health issue they had. They never had the diagnosis, you know, formally. They were never treated with Zambian or, you know, Xanax or whatever. Um, and so instead, they were self-medicating only enough to get the edge off or figure out how to focus or whatever they were doing, but they were holding the job down and they were taking care of families. They were in church. <laughs> they were doing all these things, but they were functional addicts. Many of them were self-medicating. And so what we're finding out now is mental health issues are a lot broader than we once thought they were. And now it's our job to identify them better and then give people the access that they need. Not everybody can spend two hours laying on a, or have the access or the time to spend two hours laying on someone's leather couch. But if I can 
to you with a Zoom meeting in 20 minutes and you can talk to me every day, then I might be able to save somebody's life or save them from uh, self-medicating with, with some illegal substance um, versus, you know, an actual maybe prescription drug. But again, everything is in drugs. Some of it, I just need to talk to somebody. You know, I need somebody to care enough to have this conversation with me. Everybody doesn't have to be medicated. And, and I'm, I'm glad you said that, had that conversation, because our next question is, how do you start a conversation? About mental health. Well, I've had the opportunity to, to kind of reverse um, engineer that instead of like having to sort of really jump into mental health. I always use the term self-care. How are you caring for yourself? What are you doing for yourself? What are some of the things that you find you're not able to do? Um, when you don't do those things, how does that make you feel? When you're actually talking to someone and you say, do you get an opportunity to do self-care? If their answer is self-care, what is that? Well, that's already a question, a conversation, right? Well, so one, do you not think you're worthy of self-care? Because that's a, that's a form, uh, a, a sign of, of self-neglect and, and self-deprivation and even depression. I don't deserve to be cared about. I don't deserve to, to you know, have somebody do something for me. That is actually one of the signs and symptoms that we look for, right, in, in mental health um, uh, issues or, or disease or disorders. Um, if I'm talking to you about um, some of the things that you do for yourself or don't do for yourself, and you're talking to me about all you do is sleep, who has time for that, right? Or all you want to do is eat or all you want to do. Like, if the things that you're answering are pathologic, then I may talk about that thing we just you just answered. Well, tell me more about that. Why are you doing this? Why don't you want? What about? Do you ever walk? Do you go out? No. Why? You know. And then the, some of the answers tell me just what they think about themselves. Once we have that conversation, I really get into: um, Have you ever thought of yourself as depressed? Have you ever thought of yourself as you know? Or do you? consider what anxiety is. Tell me a little bit about. So so some of their answers about their self-care activities allow me to sort of talk more about mental health and mental health issues and how normalizing it is that we are talking about mental health issues. But when you kind of start right off with mental health issues as the conversation, um, people can be very defensive about it. And, so. and I, I like how you kind of like went into that because uh, a, a lot of times I, I've seen over the years how we're kind of vague in our questioning. Like, how was your day? And then that's that's the stink of that conversation. And a lot of times people want to express what they're dealing with, but we don't ask long enough to get an answer. And, and that could be twofold. And I don't know if you've experienced that, but a lot of times people don't ask because now you don't want to be quote unquote diagnosed. <laughs> yeah. You know, no, that's that true. Because you don't want to have to start sharing what you're dealing with. So how, how have you seen that go? Um, no, that's very true. I think that you got to be ready for the conversation. When someone says, how is your day? Or how was your day? Or when you say, how was your day? And the person really goes into how their day was. There are many times where people are like, oh, I did not mean for them to say all that. And so if you really don't mean that, you know, you might want to you know, modify how you, because the greeting could just be, hey, um, you know, have a good day versus how is your day? If you really ask me how my day is and I begin to tell you, then hopefully you don't get annoyed when I go deep into it. But um, you're right. There are times when people don't want to open up. I found, especially even with this book, I found that what made it easier for my colleagues to open up is that knowing I was doing a chapter, first of all. This is a book, I'm the visionary author, but guess what? The first chapter is mine. Let me tell you the motivation behind the book. I had my own issues. I was feeling this way. I decided this was something I needed. And so therefore, because I knew it was a catalyst for me, I'm, you know, assuming and hoping it would be the same for you. And so sometimes letting people know, and that's why I say that whole 
projecting only the wins, winning, 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 can alienate others from wanting to tell you that they're having a, a particular challenge. Because who's going to tell you that they're having a challenge if you come across as never, ever having a challenge yourself? And you're not the person that I can share this with. So I think opening up about your own challenges without being unprofessional, but opening up and, you know, I'm having a hard time too. This pandemic is very difficult. As a parent, this is very, you know, I say this to my parents all the time in the clinic. I, I, one, I, first of all, I applaud them all the time. If you have young kids, oh, I'm applauding you <laughs> because I, I don't know what I would have done in this pandemic if, when my children were smaller, having to deal with that, having to be mom, having to be home care, home school teacher and have, that's a lot. And so anybody who's managing it at all, even if they're mismanaging it, because it's a lot. So a lot of times the way that I uh, address people is just letting them know this thing is hard. Nobody knew what to do. Um, and we're all managing through it together. Um, and so I try to call, you know, attention to where we're similar, where we're both, you know, might be challenged um, so that they know they're not alone. And I find that that. You, you know what I, I love about the fact that you guys wrote this book? What, what, I, what I really love about it is it's not just a book for uh, health professionals. Mm. It's a book about life and experiences and how you guys have navigated this day and time. And it's so, so that anybody can pick that book up and they can see themselves. Absolutely. They can see their, their families and their lives and their experiences. Right. So yeah, I, I like that. Mm -hmm. and, and for me, well, actually, you know, the feedback I've gotten is that it humanizes um, healthcare workers for people. Because, again, you see the white coat, um, you see the stethoscope, you know, we're writing prescriptions and we just have this thing together. We figured it all out. Here you go. <laughs> and um, people read the book and went, wow, you guys, I didn't realize how much you were dealing with behind this white coat because you never really let us know that this was as scary for you as it was for us. And so they even appreciated it more because we didn't necessarily put it out there, but we were willing to put it out in a way that was controlled to say, hey, you're not the only ones. You weren't the only ones feeling this. You weren't the only ones stressed out. You weren't the only ones dealing with happening, you know, with your families. Some of us even talked about family members that they lost, you know, to COVID. Family um, patients that they lost to COVID that that they took very they took it very hard. Um, and so we had to we wanted to really really personalize um, this this time and let people know. We're in this together. And yes, we're healthcare workers, but we're definitely um, a part of these communities that we're serving. And so, we're you know, you talk, you talk about family members. I remember early on, uh, actually, right before they gave us the uh, title of COVID 19, I had an uncle that actually passed away from all the symptoms that they said COVID 19 presented. And so, and, and I thought about the many family members that went to see him during his sickness that, that were exposed, not knowing exactly what he was dealing with because the doctors did not know. And every doctor that talked with my cousin and talked with my aunt had no idea what this healthy man was dealing with during that time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's scary because, as you said, there was a lot more exposure than people realized what's going on in the very beginning. Um, and by the time, you know, one of the first real exposures happened in New Orleans right around Mardi Gras and no one knew. And think about how Mardi Gras is, the, the, the nature of how Mardi Gras is celebrated. And there were thousands and thousands of people and they were all, you know, integrated and, and very close contact. And come to find out some of the early, early infections happened right there in New Orleans during Mardi Gras. And so who, you know, who would have thought um, that this tradition of years and years should be shut down? Um, and so no one thought to do that. 
But afterward, I was thinking that's scary because there were thousands of people. People, people ascend onto um, descend rather onto New Orleans from everywhere for Mardi Gras, flying from other countries, and that's what happened. Um, and so, like you said, the amount of exposure. Uh, I mean, we saw with the numbers and how crazy it got, but the amount of exposure was just phenomenal. Do are has the I don't want to say industry, but well, let me ask this question, especially with children, because we we we're a large family, we're a blended family, we're a large family. Uh, we got eleven grandchildren. <laughs> and wow! And so the kids they 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 are they're dealing with, like you say, online schooling. And then the social distancing issue, not being able to have that interaction with their friends and, and all these different things. Have you seen an increase in in the young people and young adults dealing with uh, mental issues? Oh, my goodness. So that's a huge topic right now. Um, a lot of our young kids, you know, and I really feel bad for them because, um, you know, young people are resilient by nature. We know that. They're great but they can only take so much. And if you really think about it, we had a whole group of folks who came out of high school, right? We're coming out of their high school year, no prom, no graduation, no senior trip. So they were already feeling deprived and then going some of them into college with no real orientation, couldn't meet the new student. Like, like that's the whole fun of going to college, right? You get to the campus, you get to buy all the new stuff, you get a, a roommate, you get to go through this experience. So they went through all of that, but at the same time, they were dealing with possibly losing family members, um, possibly family members like parents losing jobs, so or not going to school because the family members lost a job and couldn't pay tuition. So much was happening to that group. Then you also had the kids who were already in high school, but it completely changed. So if you did have the experience of uh, the community that was happening, and then all of a sudden you didn't have it, right? Now you're stuck. You're at home. No longer your friends. No football games, basketball games. You know, the, the, the things that make high school fun. That stuff was gone. And, and and as kids, connections are extremely important. That is the yes. most things to them are their connections. Um, and so their social connections were, were cut off immediately at no fault of their own, right? And you couldn't just um, do, do good, you know, and win it back like a reward, you know? It wasn't like they were punished and then they could do the good things that they could do and get it back. It was none of it. It wasn't coming back. We don't know when. And it's happening to all of us. So, quote, unquote, get over it. How do you tell a kid that? That's hard. Well, we've just found, so it's this huge thing that a lot of high school students have been very depressed. Um, and it's affected schooling. We all know that it's been a, a huge problem with the divide in um, educational systems. Some people aren't, um, the schools themselves didn't really, uh, they didn't really, um, navigate this thing very well and they didn't respond very well with the resources. They didn't have the resources to respond. Um, and so one of the things that I've been very proud of that we've been able to do at Children's is we actually, I don't know if you all know this, but I'm now um, on the board of directors for the David Lynch Foundation, which is a transcendental meditation um, um, company, I mean, organization, institute. And so we at Children's actually put together uh, a group of, and it's, it's a study, but it's really more for the kids for practicing uh, purposes of, of teens who we've introduced transcendental meditation to these kids so that mm -hmm. they can learn to meditate, to center themselves, to really um, deal with the anxiety and the stress of the pandemic of uh, you know, finding themselves in this space that they've never been in before, in this space that they can't control, they they don't know when it's going to end. Um, transcendental meditation, I, I've been a practice a practitioner for years, but it allows you to feel in control of your of your environment. 
in control of yourself with the amount of the, the breathing, that the techniques, the really sort of settling down into this part of your brain and your mind where all things are calm. It really is. It's just very empowering. And so we've been able to do this with teams. Um, and we actually just we're doing our orientation for our next cohort um, right now. My son is participating in this next cohort. He's 19, um, would have been already at Morehouse, but took this year and he's definitely going to the fall. So he's actually helping out with this next group. We're going to be um, one of the train the trainers in this next group. But we've actually, um, that's one of the sort of solutions, if you will, that we have applied to um, what we've found going on with our with our teens. And my next step is to do the same thing with younger kids and their parents. Do it as a, a family unit of um, learning to meditate. Because um, kids as young as two and three can learn to meditate, they meditate, but it's just in a different way. It's not. It's still transcendental meditation, but there's a different technique. And we have a phenomenal woman, Miss Rena Boone, who does the um, who does the uh, the training for these teens and um, will be helping us do the same thing for the families. So that's one of the ways we sort of responded to uh, the mental health needs um, and this mental health crisis, if you will, for, um, for children and for teens. And, you know, I, I, I love that. Um, a saying I heard years ago is that all we know is not all there is to know. And so there's something, and that's one of the things that, uh, Melon and myself have endeavored within the blender is not just talking about blended families, we're talking about life. Mm-hmm. Because you can navigate the blended family better if you navigate in life better. Absolutely. So There's so many things that, that we want to share with people, um, that we want to expose people to because all growth is exposure. And having you on here has been such a breath of fresh air has been a breeze. Uh, we so appreciate you taking out your, your time. <laughs> we know you're super busy. Um, but I knew I heard that I needed to reach out to you. And I, I knew that when I heard that, it wasn't a question of if you were going to say yes or no. Because <laughs> you see, it was almost like... Wow, did he really just reach out to me doing this? Yes. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I just believe that that you are going to share something with our uh, viewing and listening audience that was going to change the trajectory of somebody's life doing this. And so, again, we thank you. Um, we're going to try to figure out how we can get you back on in a couple of weeks. Uh, so we, we, I'll reach back out to you later on that. Uh, so we can even just finish again. We don't want to let this uh, this month coming up go and just go by. This is something that we need to talk about on a continuous basis. Something mm-hmm. that we need to share on a continual basis. Not just for a month. You know what I'm saying? It's like Black History Month. I was literally about to say that. It's like Black History Month. We're finally starting to realize you don't want to only talk about our contributions and and what we're um, capable of and, and how we need to sort of expand ourselves in just the month of February. Um, and, and in the same vein, we mental health awareness should be, you know, 365 days a year. We should really exactly. our mental health because it is essential, right? If we don't talk about it and if we don't get it right, um, not only are we hurting ourselves, but we're really hurting others around us because I, I, I say it all the time. One of my favorite sayings is hurt people, hurt people. And we're not doing well when somebody has a bad day. We don't know what kind of day Derek Chauvin was having that day, but we know it spilled over and it killed somebody that day, right? So when somebody has been uh, traumatized or brutalized or victimized in some way, often their response is to traumatize, brutalize, and victimize someone else. And our job is to really find out how to identify that stuff and address it so that we stop these cycles and we stop people from um, hurting others because they've been hurt. Now, if you're just hurting somebody because you want to hurt them, that's 
whole does a different thing and that's criminal. But many people, I, you can talk to several people in the in the justice system who are in legal, you know, who are who have been um, detained, you know, in, in jails and prisons. Many of them were victimized or at some point it was done to them and they began to do this to others. And it's a cycle that doesn't get broken. And that's part of the problem. And so our Listen, job- hold, 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 your, hold your book up for me because we got we got to close, but hold your book up for me. Listen guys, this is Dr. Yolanda Lewis Ragland, an awesome woman and awesome woman of God. Listen, you want to get that book, uh, Navigating a Triple Pandemic, uh, uh, listen, we're going to get her back on. She's it's on not Amazon. A, um, if you're looking for it, by the way. It's on Amazon. Say that again? We can get it where? It's on Amazon. Amazon. It's on Amazon. So you want to order that book. Let's support her and her uh, colleagues as they endeavor to expose us to a better, healthier life. Uh, listen, we thank you. How can they reach us, sweetheart? Um, they can reach us uh, via email at weareablendedfamily at gmail.com and also our website in theblenderministries.com. Also, don't forget to tune in on Thursday nights to WJMS Radio where you have a replay of tonight's broadcast. If you have any questions, you want to reach out to Dr. Yolanda and, and, and get some answers, listen, how can they reach us? Reach us. Reach us. How can they reach her? How can they reach? How can they reach you, Doc? Well, you, can, you can always email me info at dryolandamd.com. Um, That's my email. Um, my website is dryolandamd.com. So it's very simple. Um, I am the same thing on Instagram, dryolandamd. And um, I'm dryolandamd, I think, on Twitter. Uh, I have Dr. Yolanda Cares Foundation. That's my nonprofit. Um, so yeah, there are plenty of ways to to reach me. So go ahead, sweetie. So listen, guys, we thank you for joining us again, Dr. Yolanda. We thank you so much for sharing with us on this evening. We'll get with you soon to set up our second talk. And until next time, good night, everyone. Good night. Thanks for having me. Thank you for thank accepting. You. All right, no problem. Enjoy. Bye bye. Thank you for tuning in to the dynamic broadcast of In the Blender with Brandon and Madeline Hyman. WJMS Radio. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Far too kind. See, we keep it real. You can't knock what's real, you know what I'm saying? We telling the truth, man.